welcome to the Bad Vibes Club. Thanks for joining me again. I know it's been a while since we've last been together. This time I'm speaking to Ralph Pritchard, who's an artist, filmmaker, lives in London. We spoke over Skype. My mic wasn't sounding so great, which is a bit of a shame, but um, his audio is excellent, so thanks for that, Ralph. Over the last year, Ralph's made about 13 films under the heading of Films from the Quarantine, so Films from the Quarantine. And they're all kind of short-form films in this vertical format that he posted to Instagram and around the web. And we spoke about the most recent of these films, so three films called Approval, Flinching and Crushing. As well as that, we spoke about his time with Navara Media, who are an independent left-wing media organisation, We spoke a lot about uncertainty and the themes of the films, one of which is about exposure therapy for OCD, which Ralph suffers from and has experience with. So we spoke about that. We also spoke about crits, art crits, and about shame. And then we had an interesting discussion where we kind of disagreed about aesthetics and how conceptual ideas are represented in, in artistic material. I thought that was super interesting to hear Ralph's perspective on that. And yeah, we talk about cringe and why first impression shouldn't count. And it's a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks to Ralph for speaking to me. I'll include links in the description to the films, uh, which are also on his website. So you can click around and have a look at what else he does. But the way we start this conversation is me telling Ralph about a dream I had that involved him. So I'll leave you with that. Hope you enjoy the conversation. I'll see you at the end. What happened was we'd, we'd taken a studio together mm-hmm. and you were trying to get on with some serious work. But I, <laughs> I was like, really, I'd like come up with an idea for a song, which is a kind of pop punk song. And me and my wife were trying to, I was like trying to note it down. And my wife was trying to sing it tunelessly beside me. And I was like, no, let me just note it down. And I could just tell you were getting really annoyed. You were like trying to edit some video or something. <laughs> It's really good. That's funny. It was called something like Super Size My Love. That was your song was called that. Yeah, you know, like a big, you know, like a McDonald's reference. But a really kind of out of date (laughs) McDonald's (laughs) reference. Yeah, funny, they don't use that phrase anymore, do they? Oh, yeah, that's true. That's the whole thing, wasn't it? That was the outcome of that that kind of film, was that they kind of ended up uh, making salads again and stuff like that. Yeah, and they they made all their branding green, at least in the UK, Maybe oh, that's true. They yeah, used a shade of dark green that makes you feel more ethical. It reminds you of the vegetables you're not eating when you're yeah. eating <laughs> a Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got a McDonald's breakfast yesterday. Oh, nice one! It was really good. I haven't eaten a McDonald's breakfast. It's because I haven't eaten a McDonald's breakfast for the whole time of pandemic because I haven't been going to like northern cities and doing very small public mm. program related art gigs so I haven't been on a train and therefore I haven't been to like <laughs> King's Cross Station and got a McDonald's breakfast it's very sad I went to McDonald's with Mikey like a few months ago what did you get what's your standard order chicken selects actually oh really okay. yeah although they, they were one it was like there were only two in the box and it was supposed to be three so I was a bit annoyed Oh, mm. they're the posh, like the fancy yeah, chicken yeah, nuggets. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Don't know what that says about me, though. I always get the chicken select. <laughs> I think McDonald's is a very... But the spices are very good in the chicken selects. Oh, really? They've got a kind of crispy coating, have they? Yeah, it's a bit like KFC, mm. basically. Um, I was thinking of getting a KFC soon, actually, because I just haven't had that for ages. The last time I had that, it was on the end of a night out. It just feels like real, like a real quest when you have, like KFC. Because when chicken <laughs> selects, is like there's not that much there. And they're all quite homogenous. But like KFC, there's like, you know, there's just all kinds of stuff going on. I used to do that occasionally. I used to work at Whitechapel as a duty manager. And on a Sunday, basically no other staff would be in apart from, you know, front of house gallery staff. So I'd just be hung over and go and get a KFC and just go up to the like where they normally do like kids activities and just like lay down and eat KFC <laughs> and listen to the radio. <laughs> like if I needed to go down Amazing. and do any work, I'd, yeah, they'd shout at me on the radio. It's good. Anyway. Right, let's talk about, do you call yourself an artist or do you call yourself a filmmaker? How do you describe yourself? Um, Film director. Film director, okay. But actually filmmaker, film artist, artist. Artist kind of, it's annoying really, because it's like, 
I exist in the art world. Mm. Uh, I'm not really visible in the film world. I don't. I'm not. I'm not part of that world at all. So I guess I'm. I guess artist is probably easier. But I'm so dedicated to moving image and cinema, and I my ambition is is all within like well, the things I really love are all films. Like I'm, that's my passion. Has that so, always been the case? Did Did you go to art school or did you study film or moving image or something? Yeah, so I I started a BA at LCC in film practice. Um, but it wasn't very stimulating, so I dropped out after the first term mm. um, and got involved in video journalism. I sort of helped to found the video operations of, of a kind of lefty media organisation called Navara, um, and that's sort of how I learnt a lot of stuff um, that I use for my paid work these days. Um, but then I wanted to, when I left Navara, I wanted to like, be, like I sort of I'd, I'd become much more. I drifted much more towards the art world, and so then I wanted to do an MA, uh, mm. an MFA. Um, so I went to the RCA and did this course called Critical Practice, um, mostly because the tutor there, Tai Shani, uh, I found her quite impressive in the interview. Um, oh, really? The kind of questions she was asking, yeah. And was she? Did she end up being one of your tutors at the MA as well? Yeah, so she was my tutor, um, when yeah, when I joined. But again, I don't really fit where I are into institutions and the RCA was quite frustrating and annoying a lot of the time. But I was at the same time, just before and then overlapping, I was part of this thing called School of the Damned, which is like an alternative art school, which is just basically 20 people are kind of selected by the previous 20 people to self-organise and put on a show. And because the School of the Damned has a brand recognition, they often get offered spaces and opportunities and residencies and things. It's still going, I believe. Um, but yeah, that was really fun. Made loads of f- friends and stuff. I always think like the kind of relationships you make are informed by the way that you get to know those people. So like a, I'm really good friends with those of those people at the School of the Damned. I think partly because we had to rely on each other and we had to make it from mm-hmm. the ground up and there were no bosses that we could get angry at. Whereas I think a lot of the people at the RCA I've sort of lost touch with because I think the bonds that were formed in that environment were much more like getting pissed off with the higher ups and kind of yeah it was very it was that that I mean now with COVID I think doing an art degree is even worse but uh, (laughs) I think like (laughs) when I did it it was at that tail end of like neoliberalism where the stress is on studio space and um, the uh, yeah like the, the, the degree show was just sort of so no one really got a fair hearing in the degree show I don't think um, yeah. there wasn't enough space wasn't enough time and yeah and then there were and then there was a lot of sort of policing within the course I think around like um, it felt like not a very creatively open environment because people were constantly like applying all these um, political critiques are, are you in a position to talk about this topic should you make that should you you know um, which I think most a lot that just shuts down a lot of people's imagination because they're constantly feeling self-conscious. Yeah, it didn't. It sort of had the opposite effect of me. Like I did a rap album, <laughs> all, of, all, oh, about, yeah, all about album. all about being yeah. like a straight white man. Yeah. <laughs> but like for a lot of people, I think that environment sort of closed them off a bit. Really. Well, I suppose it maybe it, it, for some people it can be it can just be really scary, can't it? The the notion that other people are going to have opinions on what is the correct thing for you to do based on who you who they deem your identity position to be well it's all about judgment isn't it and um like everyone why do people make art i think because it's something it's something to do with uncertainty and vulnerability and wanting to kind of describe or articulate something that can't quite be described or articulated literally and so inevitably the sort of people who drift towards that will be I don't know there's often just a high level of anxiety or desire for approval or like asking for permission and then mm-hmm. um, yeah that those sort of institutional environments even when they're art schools um, they because it's a hierarchy because there's like people like the tutors who are senior and the students who you know like I, there was a guy on my course um he, 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 a lot of the things he did were kind of like experiments around kind of status and and society. He, he called himself name surname. He like deed polled himself. So that's like his name. <laughs> um, but one of the experiments he did while he was on the course um, was 
uh, he got permission from the tutor to, uh, from the course coordinator to be a visiting tutor while he was a student. So when they had the visiting lecturers, you know, and you'd have a list of like, you know, all these different artists who are coming to, and he would be, he managed to get himself on that list. He didn't, he wasn't paid for it, but he was someone you could have. If you, if you were a bit late on the Google documents, like picking your tutor, you'd end up with him. And because the, the course was just large enough that um, it was like, like the main, the, um, the, I would, the sub-course critical practice was like 20 people, so you'd know all of them, but within the whole contemporary art practice framework, um, there were two years, so I think there was about 80 people. So a lot of people didn't know that he was a student, and they would just be having a tutorial with this guy who was their fellow student, and he was like, it's incredible how much they listened to me and how much importance they placed on this stuff I was saying, and it felt like... <laughs> crazy and you think yeah like when someone is in a position of authority when someone is even though the revolving door between being a visiting tutor and being a student is like so brief suddenly you're like oh oh you think i should do this oh mm, maybe i should you know it's like it destroys people really or maybe people just let themselves be destroyed i don't know how to well there's a kind of um there's a confidence or that you're putting a lot of trust in a institution aren't you when you give them money to come and study or even Mm. when you do something for free you're kind of trusting that they have a way of doing things and that you will submit to that way of doing things and you will learn stuff from that way of doing things confidence doesn't necessarily get felt in those situations but people know that it is required for those situations to work like Mm. the economy right like we don't necessarily feel a confidence in the economy but people understand that confidence is essential to the economy so what people don't people like pull is, their money out when they lose confidence. Exactly, yeah. So people respond to a lack of it or mm-hmm. the feeling of being tricked into believing other people had confidence in something. Mm-hmm. But not a lot of people actually feel any positive, you know, positive in the sense of a real describable feeling of confidence. Mm. And I suppose what neoliberalism did was consistently and openly give people the feeling of a lack of confidence. Possibly as like an ideological like power move, like just to make people... You know, the students I speak to when I go and do BA stuff over the last few years, now it'd be all about pandemic, but the last few years, it's just quite a lot of people like moaning about practical stuff, like how much studio space they got, how much time they get from their tutors, all of this kind of stuff. And I don't know, I just went to uni mid 2000s and we just didn't pay that much money for it. So I never really thought of myself as like being given anything in return or paying something or being what that move was, was a successful, a switch for the status of student, for the status of consumer, I suppose. And that's been made already. And now pandemic is like exacerbates that because it's like you really see what you're not getting and how little confidence you can have in, in the institution because you're like stuck at home and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, but the Zoom things are fine. Like there's official emails that go around <laughs> saying that you're like basically not really allowed to say that this is not as good as normal uni. Right, that's an edict. Yeah, exactly. Because you could, you know, you could stress that it's harder or something, but you can't stress that it's just not as good. <laughs> it's just a shitter experience. Anyway, so uh, so you so that's how you ended up because I knew you worked with Navarra, but I didn't know that it was so kind of early on in your. Yeah, I was like eighteen. No way, that's amazing, yeah. man. So what what was that experience like then? Well, we sort of built it up from from it was a radio show on resonance before and then i i was just as a sixth former i just listened to that radio show quite a lot and i emailed um aaron bastani who sort of founded the organization and i got in touch and yeah it just was like this would be great as a video series like and i have cameras and i want to do that and yeah so that and then it grew and then it sort of coincided with uh corbyn becoming leader of the labor party and then brexit and those were the two main things that my tenure covered um but it was still quite a small thing operation um, then compared to what it is now, I think. Uh, and what did you what did you learn from that? Because that was like pretty heady, manic time in left wing politics, wasn't it? Like, were you directing videos? Were you coming up with ideas for them or were you just executing stuff? Yeah. So to begin with, it was just I would just work with Aaron and with James and with uh, Ash and we would develop content just based on stuff we wanted to talk about and I would just be facilitating their ideas and adding my own... I would do a lot of script editing because a lot of their experience was quite academic, so I'd be breaking the language down so it was more more, more accessible. I learned a lot about social media and about what stuff gets hits and how... And that was at a time when things were evolving a lot in that ecosystem. ecosystem. 
um, ecosystem echo chamber. Echo system, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I basically just, I mean, there's lots of reasons why I left, but like, I think looking back, it's, I, I, I can't stand um, dogmatism and like that sense of certainty and creating a system where you're trying to give people an opinion. At first I was like really practically like, this is great. We're giving people new arguments they can share and everyone will become left wing and it will be really great. And then now I just think I'm, I'm quite jaded about like left media. I think it just, it always, if you're in social media, I think you're just playing on people's anxieties. And if you're playing on people's anxieties, you're disempowering them. That's sort of how I feel about it at the moment. But mm. I might change my mind. It must be informed by just, you know, it's probably very tiring, like an exciting, but probably quite tiring and depressing time to be deeply involved in politics, left-wing politics, <laughs> over that period. It was depressing. Yeah. From, from the outside, it's just someone who like votes and probably doesn't really do much kind of activist work. It was really exciting and then really, really depressing. So I can't imagine what yeah. it was like on the inside. I remember being in the Momentum offices when Corbyn, there was like a, people don't remember it now, but Corbyn was challenged for the leadership just after Brexit. And uh, but there was this moment, this the mo- moment where the NEC were, it was a very fine balance in the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party and they were deciding whether or not he could go back on the ballot. Mm. as He automatically go back on the ballot because, of course, he only ever made it onto the first ballot because everyone was like, oh, he'll never win. So now that he was leader and he was being challenged, they had to find out whether he would automatically be back on the ballot or whether they'd, you know, because he wouldn't make it on the ballot if, if he had to get votes from MPs again. Mm. Um, and I just, yeah, we were just waiting, like in the momentum offices like with these takeaway boxes of wasabi just like thinking like this is the future is it hinges on this one meeting like what what's the outcome going to be you know and yeah that was pretty tense pretty um there was a lot of moments of excitement and a lot of moments where you felt like people felt like you were at the center of something really important i think about that a lot in relationship to inflated responsibility actually like because a lot of the time in the art world people in the art world expect too much of themselves politically like that they personally are going to have some kind of effect. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that there'll be some direct like moral um, outcome or, or that they will be able to demonstrate some example through their practice. I don't know, I just think people were too hard on themselves and it's art and you should, you should just be more intuitive. But in journalism or in activist journalism, like it literally is inflated responsibility. You literally want to change the world. <laughs> um, you're li- like that's the whole sort of... Um, so I, it's a funny comparison point. I moved away from that because I was like, this whole improving the world thing seems a bit like screwed up and it seems to be making everyone's mental health kind of bad and it's really neurotic. And, and what do you think about political art then in terms of, yeah, in terms of artists who are invested in the political? I'm thinking of, actually, maybe let's, let's say, I was going to talk about Adam Curtis, but maybe we could save that for a little bit. Oh, no, maybe let's bring him up now because you use a bit of... Um, yeah. In that film, sorry, I'm just going to name the films so then we can yeah, talk yeah. about them. So you sent me three films. I've seen lots of your short films, but we thought we'd talk about your latest ones, which are called Approval, Flinching and Crushing. And yep. um, so I'll just mention that and then we could go back to this Adam Curtis thing. In one of the films, in Crushing, you use a bit of footage from the first episode of the new Adam Curtis doc. Is that right? It's footage from an interview with Robin Douglas Hume, um, which Curtis actually posted the whole TV show on his blog. It's this 1960s TV show about divorce. And it's like a bit like Made in Chelsea um, in terms of these sort of parallel aristocrat narratives about all these people getting remarried at a time when the law was changing uh, quite crucially on, on divorce. And there's this really extraordinary interview with Robin Douglas Hume, who was the nephew of Alec Douglas Hume, the former Conservative Prime Minister. And he's gone through this messy divorce with uh, Sandra Paul, I think her name is. Um, but she's, she's married to Michael Howard now, the, uh, the, oh, right, the former, wow. <laughs> former Conservative Party leader. But anyway, so he's, um, this guy Robin Douglas Hume, he's, he's being asked by the interviewer after this horrible divorce, like, would you... I don't think Curtis includes this bit in his show, but um, he's being asked, would you marry again? And he says, I don't want to be, I don't want to risk being destroyed again. And there's just like tears, you know, streaming uh, down his face. And he's just completely just, it feels like his heart has just been like scooped out like an avocado or something. He's just, (laughs) yeah, it's really, I, I was very moved by it. But in terms of the, um, the idea of changing the world or having an effect on the world, Curtis uses his edit of that footage to 
he's making a, I mean, as he does, he's making a very broad point about shifting, shifting ideas of power in the mm. mid 20th century. Whereas your use of it is very much directly about, you know, individual emotional responses. Mm. So yeah, is that like, obviously you've gone from someone who was making videos where I'm assuming you were instrumentalizing footage to make political points. Yeah. And do you feel yourself to be doing something completely different now? Or is there still an element where you're trying to make a point about something like, or trying to provide information? Because I, I did notice, and this is something I'm thinking about quite a lot at the moment, the titles of the videos are very clear. Mm. And if we're thinking about journalism, clarity is valued very highly, right? So it's, it's very clear what these videos are about and I think aboutness is really interesting in art because not a lot of art film you know arty filmmakers whatever whatever we call them but video essayists or experimental filmmakers or whatever often aboutness is kind of hidden or submerged somewhere but you're titling your films and you're really clear about what they're about so what's your relationship to that idea of like providing information or yeah having a, a direct effect? Because these videos appear on Instagram, they appear on social media. These the skill that I learned from journalism that that applies most to that work is just being able to grab people's attention, being able to like you know using the subtitles, using a mixture of collaged imagery. That's about as far I think other people might say differently about my work, but I think that's about as far as it goes in terms of what I learned from journalism. Because what I'm, I'm kind of, I'm really trying to bring together ideas that don't sit very well together into space. All I'm trying to tell the audience is like the world contains these different forces, and we are forced to make our own mind up between these different ideas. I think the video, maybe the flinching video has a slightly different quality because to an extent it's me trying to explain exposure response prevention, which is like a therapy for OCD. Mm, and I okay. wanted to, I wanted to sort of use, because it's quite an abstract idea, I wanted to use the techniques I used in my, in my more conceptual films to um, this quality of flinching. I wanted to kind of express that through these, these videos that are all, they all, they are more kind of, um, batting for the same team, those clips. But mostly I tend to bring in clips that are in total war with each other, you know, because I don't know what I think. And I think that's kind of what it is. Like when I was interviewed at, for the RCA, like it was like a week after Trump had been inaugurated and Ty said to me, like, why now are you moving from like politically committed journalism to being an artist? Um, and I said, because like political journalism is like all about certainty and giving people certainty and I don't think that those tools of certainty have really helped us very much and I so I want to concentrate on uncertainty uh, let's talk about that flinching video then describe it what's the technique uh, exposure response prevention and that's a technique to help with symptoms of OCD is that right yeah it's the first line treatment it's the first thing um, people special OCD specialists uh, suggest and it's quite a recent technique like technique Okay, and describe it for us. So it's it's a it's a genre of exposure therapy, and it's within CBT. So what I mean by that is like um, it's about your brain's behaviour, and um, and you expose yourself to things that make you anxious. It's kind of like a nice and formal way of describing it is it's the opposite of self care in the short term. Like you do something which you predict will make you anxious but you kind of take a slight sort of sarcastic distance to the stimuli. You just sort of, and you make sure not to engage in any avoiding behavior. So that's why the film's called Flinching. When you have like anxiety of any kind, really, your brain is basically doing what it would do if a lion jumped out at you in the desert, right? That's the whole evolutionary thing. So, uh, and we get intrusive thoughts all the time. Like most people think things that don't really align with their values and are a bit disgusting quite often, but most people don't engage with those thoughts because they're not relevant. But um, OCD has a way of making irrelevant stuff that's quite painful or upsetting um, seem really relevant and important and kind of as important as, you know, a car about to run you over. Mm. And so the technique of ERP is about teaching your brain not to respond to that anxiety, not to flinch, not to try and protect yourself. Um, and in doing so... You then become desensitized to that thing. In the short term, I think, for at least from my experience, the the, the kind of anxiety shifts to another topic, and so it's, there's a little bit of whack a mole. But as the as the anxiety shifts between topics really quickly, I'll give some examples of topics like common OCDs are like cleanness. The famous one is like you know um, I've left the gas on or like this door handle is unclean. But there's also loads of um, 
more kind of internal ones like thinking that you're a paedophile, thinking that you're a certain gender identity that, or sexuality that you're not. And these thoughts or harm stuff or, you know, doubting a relationship that, that where there isn't much reason to doubt it or slightly paranoid stuff. Um, it kind of just, it, it adapts to whatever thing might be sensitive for mm. you. As, as, as the anxiety sort of shifts around, you're basically trying to avoid feelings. For whatever, most of us, you know, when difficult feelings come up, we sort of have to find some way of like handling them and, and OCD sort of manifests those feelings in things that they aren't. So the process of ERP is about being like, oh, okay, that's just, that's just a thought. Um, I don't have to like panic. And the more you notice the, the subject matter changing, the more you realise they're all post-it notes with the same colour. They're all, they all function mm-hmm. in the same way, these thoughts. They're just being applied to different things. You know, today I think that I have cancer. Tomorrow I think that, you know, my friend hates me, you know, whatever, like, the next day I might think I'm a paedophile like it's just it just but they all sort of sound the same you know I was reading some stuff recently Andrea Butner the artist actually she's just published her um her PhD that she did at the RCA back 10 years ago or something it's called shame Mm -hmm. it's all about shame and visual art and how they might kind of share a structure Mm -hmm. um but she quotes Eve Sedgwick on shame Mm um who calls it a kind of free floating or she calls it a free radical this idea that it's it it has no particular object even though we try and fix it to things like sexuality in the body in Mm. fact it just it can attach itself to anything at any time and the idea that shame is a particular quality of a particular kind of body or something is it's like a fantasy of the shameful you know like Mm. oh i shouldn't be ashamed because actually these people should it's like a way of kind of shifting responsibility for shame when in fact, a bit like what I guess you're talking about, anxiety in the Heideggerian sense, right? Of You're anxious about being, you're anxious about existing. Yeah. And then your mind wants to be like, no, no, it's not that. It's not, it's not, anxiety isn't like the world. It's just about this one particular thing that's really yeah, awful. Yeah, and if I just fix this one thing, then it will be fine. When, yeah. you know, a really common thing when you have like, a, like a, an OCD attack or just anxiety generally is like, oh man, like things are okay except this one thing. And if I could just fix this one thing, but then it always, you'll just notice something else if, you're, if it's bubbling under. It strikes me, and this is, this is like, I'm just being really flippant here, but like, is it, do, do you have OCD? Do you suffer from OCD? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like this is like a really, really flippant take. But there's something about anxiety being fixed to one thing that's almost better than the reality of the world, which is that we're anxious about our very existence and our very mm. existence is is anxiety. But I, I suppose it what OCD does, it takes it into like the nastiest or the kind of darkest version of that anxiety. Yeah, it does. I mean, I guess what I'd say, if anyone's listening to this who thinks they might have a form of OCD like Puro or, or you know, something very, that's... In, that, What's Puro? Puro is when it's not to do with, um, it's a contentious term, but basically Puro is when it's in your, something in your head, it's something you believe about yourself rather than something to do with leaving the gas on. Or, mm. or, or Oh, so it's obsession anything. without the compulsion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then the compulsion often manifests in physical ways. So that's why it's a bit of a contentious term in, in OCD um, uh, diagnosis. But uh, yeah, what I, I guess what I'd say to anyone listening who thinks they might have this, that they might recognise some of these patterns is like, it is... You're a very imaginative person, probably. <laughs> you know, you're like probably a perfectionist, and you're probably really like creative. And like when you're working on an artistic project, you probably know exactly what the thing's going to look like instantly, and you're probably like full of ideas all the time. You know, I mean, that's I, I would just that's how I am. Like that's mm. so if I'm if I apply those thought processes to or like it's same with actually that's why it's interesting that the third film is about crushes because mm-hmm. I think crushes are kind of very similar to anxiety I, I, I one of the most soothing things I had a crush on someone like a while ago and I was like oh, like I was imagining something really horrible happening in a sort of OCD way um, and then I was like oh wow it's actually just as likely that you'll get with this person as it is that this intensely horrible thing because they both are fantasies they both exist in this like really um they're not really they're not really relevant they're just sort of fear and desire kind of finding a finding a a sort of language to speak temporarily before it moves on to something else i think there's something there about attention as well i mean crushing is interesting because also of course that's that's to do with shame or the possibility of shame or something or the possibility of humiliation i guess and Mm. and yeah and in terms of shame and this andrea butner book her vibe is that 
shame is about being ashamed of something in front of other people mm. and again that's the same as art right like we we make something and then we show it to other people and that's the thing that we respond to so we all pretend that the shame is about the object rather than about this interpersonal relationship yeah like the idea that i won't be approved of like the idea that some well i mean yeah so the first film is about approval <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just discovering yeah. new links between the films that i hadn't appreciated before but yeah like i think I think a lot of, I mean, if you read, there's, there's a Mark Freeman, who's one of the kind of uh, a YouTuber on OCD. He talks about the five whys, which is um, basically if you're having, if you're worrying about a particular, very specific thing, just ask why, why, why is that a problem if that happened? Uh, mm. Why is that a problem if that happened? Why is that? And you go back within five whys, you will get to like, I will be abandoned. Like, I'm not good enough. Mm. Or like I'm I'm like going to die or suffer. Like it's really basic stuff, but it's just because we're imaginative and creative and articulate and we're re- we're rational. We're always trying to rationalize everything. Anxiety turns those core fears that are perfectly natural and normal, and so many people have them, into like really specific things that we then kind of pour over if we're not if we're not careful. But you work a lot with shame, right? And that's something that I think we've connected over in the past as artists and people. Yeah, I mean, the way I describe it now is that I used to just say I was interested in negativity or ne- negative emotions, which is which is still partly true. But after reading this book, I think partly what I'm interested in is how certain emotions and the ones I tend to be interested in are negative, have a kind of heuristic or epistemic element in the sense that they feeling those things provides you knowledge about a situation. Mm-hmm. So Burton's example is that shame makes you aware of norms or conventions that have been broken Mm -hmm. and you don't even necessarily have to totally subscribe to the norms or conventions to feel shame about having broken them Mm -hmm. so it's quite a particular kind of critical stance or self-critical stance that's happening when we feel shame and that's really interesting because of course when we think about emotions we think about internal psychology or like feelings that are like unconnected to the world but i suppose what i'm interested in is when actually they connect they directly connect to the world and not only to the world but to quite abstract things like culture or Mm. or ideology or theory you know like that's what i was going to ask i think it's so interesting because you're um the second film flinching you'll talk about ocd and exposure techniques to thought to intrusive thoughts but of course you have to visualize those things in in moving image you have to pick footage of people being exposed to kind of physical stimulus, right? So you've got Frank Skinner trying to dip his head underwater and you've got a guy trying to put his, trying to touch some dirt, essentially, who's yeah. obviously afraid of dirt. A lot of the stuff I'm thinking about at the moment is this idea of subject matter and what happens when your subject matter is, I mean, in, in these terms, we could just think about it as not visible, as like invisible, yeah. abstract stuff. I'm, I think about it in terms of theory, but yeah, like a lot of OCD is not visible, isn't it? But you're yeah. making a film which is a kind of visual thing about it. So how did you how do you get to this point of thinking, oh I'll show this other stuff or or is this stuff you're watching anyway and then you're suddenly kind of clicking that it connects with what you're thinking about? Yeah, it's a mixture of things that I was already aware of that, that kind of come back into my head. Um like Frank Skinner's a comedian who for some reason I've always really had a fondness for. Um and so I was aware that for sport relief he'd he he does he didn't know how to swim. That was just a thing for him. He couldn't swim. And so the idea of swimming a lap just seemed completely impossible to him. And so for sport relief, they did this televised thing where he learnt to put his head underwater, to do the breathing, to you know, to, to swim one lap, which for most people is like really basic. And I that's what I wanted to show was like showing someone being worried about something that most people wouldn't be worried about then mm. shows you how those processes work so he talks about how you know he it, it it made him anxious but it didn't make him hyperventilate and he sort of notices that like i put that clip in halfway through where he's like i didn't <laughs> that's that's a bit like how erp is you will watch like a youtube clip about something you're really anxious about or you're um uh you know i like i, I had real food safety anxiety so i i had to my shrink asked me to like reheat some some chicken from the previous day in the microwave um without asking anyone how long i should put it in for without googling it mm-hmm. um just do it get on with it let the anxiety happen but f- focus on doing things you want to do and yeah and that neutralizes the anxiety over, after a while mm. um so it's something that you can apply to lots of things i mean i think 
because of lockdown, I think there's a big emphasis on like the more virtual watching YouTube videos. I started to take it on as more of a practice generally. Like I started watching just lots of cringe YouTube videos, watching like videos of people doing stand-up comedy and failing. Like there are a few compilations. There aren't that many good ones, but like, yeah, co compilations of people having a really bad stand-up gig. Are you doing exposure therapy to yourself when you're watching these things? No, but it's very exposure adjacent because it's like <laughs> stuff I would it's stuff I would switch off like because I'd just be like, oh, this is too much. Totally, you know? yeah, me too. Um, but then I was like, okay, what happens if you just keep going? You know, it's a bit like when you're at the gym <laughs> and you're like, and you, you, the only must the only muscle development you can do at the gym is in those last few goes when right, you're, really, yeah, yeah, when you're yeah. really just like fucked <laughs> and you don't want to you know you don't want to carry on anymore and that's when the that's when the muscle tears and so that's when the muscle then has to regrow so that's quite a useful metaphor for like yeah if there's something you're watching and you you turn the sound down or you like minimize the screen or you like you know don't do any of those things just watch it and just let it let it happen it doesn't it's not a threat to you why would it be a threat to you it's a youtube video you know but it also just amazing like it, it gives you an increased compassion as well watching people die on stage like it gives you you start off wanting to just like take the piss out of them but then you realize just how brave and incredible it is to you know and also it shows you how people plan things i just think that's so amazing it's like that phrase i think it's somewhere in the bible like a man makes a plan and god laughs you know like with these these stand-up comedians who like they you can tell they've got this whole thing laid out and it's gonna go to plan and then and then they get up on stage and and it doesn't go to plan and they don't know what to do they like there's like the feeling of death in their eyes you can watch it disappear it, it vaporizes yeah. doesn't it there's actually a bit where the guy goes it's gone there's like an, there's this Manchester cop in one of the one of the videos. Maybe we should put a clip. There's one of the videos. This Manchester comedian. He's doing this whole routine about like um, uh, Elvis or something. Anyway, no, like there's like smatterings of like kind laughter, like sort of like you know goodwill laughter, pity laughter, <laughs> but like no one's really laughing. He's bombing, and then he just like goes, "It's gone." <laughs> oh, that's good. It's just extraordinary, like. Wow, you know. But I think, again, this is something... I work with a performer called Daniel Oliver quite a lot, and we do stuff where he gets naked. And mm -hmm. getting naked is both still very taboo and also one almost like yeah. a cliche... Well, it is a cliche of performance art. And, we're, and we were talking about it, and because in a weird way, it's like the most obvious thing you can do in a performance. But in another way, it's still fraught with possibilities of embarrassment and humiliation and worry on the part of other people and and what we were both saying is that what's funny is that a performance that we did together and a performance he did at a kind of very weird situation at a university in america often the response ends up being that people are weirded out just before he gets naked and then when he gets naked they realize they don't mm. really have an opinion on someone being naked like they thought they thought it was yeah. embarrassing or cringeworthy or gross or perverted or, or they just vaguely thought they might have one of these feelings and then it happens mm. and actually they don't feel that at all. Yeah. And then um, I've been to quite a lot of like early stand-up, you know, five-minute slots because just various mm. friends have got into stand-up over the years and I've carried on with it or given up. So I've just seen quite a lot of those first or second gigs. For the person on stage, it's, it's still traumatic and that's the learning yeah. process. That's them tearing that muscle, as it were. Yeah. And for the audience, if you haven't been to it before, it, it's kind of terrible, but then it's just over. Mm. And, then it happen and then it literally happens right there in front of your eyes again for the next five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got to be there for like an hour and a half. And after a while, you're just like, oh, this is totally fine. Like, yeah. it is embarrassing and it is terrible. And it's also fun. Like, it's, it, it's not that you lose the embarrassment or you lose the cringe or you lose the shame of failing and stuff or yeah. being ashamed of seeing someone fail but also like that they're all like failure is is true and total and devastating and also yeah. it doesn't kill you not that yeah. it makes you stronger but that it just doesn't kill you i mean it's interesting to think about this was at the start of the show we were having like a more art worldly conversation about like crits and stuff and i feel like why is it that in a crit when someone is like criticized it often doesn't tear any new muscles it often just kind of makes them retreat um sometimes it i don't know people have different experiences but i feel like that's the the ethos of stand-up comedy where you go up on stage you die like all your favorite comedians have told stories and in interviews about how they've died on stage when they started out and that's what like reduces the shame of it is that you're like 
you've trained yourself to be like unshameable in a way. I mean, one of the great things stand-up com- comedians do is as soon as they get up on stage, like if they're bald or if they've got tooth missing or if they're fat, you know, you just say that and that will be your first go- jo- joke will be about that thing that someone's, yeah, everyone's sort of secretly noticing. I feel like artists don't have a space in which to die <laughs> like that, die and become reborn in the way that stand-up comedians do. Because every, everyone's quite, quite kind and everyone's sort of trying trying to avoid anxiety all the time. I think my advice recently in crits, it really annoys me when people don't, they don't listen and they want to explain themselves. And mm. I just want, and, and again, this is something I learned from, yeah, from being humiliated and being ashamed, acting badly within a crit. It's that I just, I just tell everyone like, just make notes, like just mm. as someone's talking. And then if you, it means that if you feel really stupid or someone said something that's really touched a nerve, you can literally pretend that it hasn't and just take a note and like nod. <laughs> <laughs> because because of the difference between stand-up and art is that we have a longer term aesthetic relationship with art. Like, and I think that's why I like art and I, re- I really love stand-up, but it's completely different. Even performance art is totally different to stand-up because laughter in performance art You've got to be tr- you've got to be careful not to be too funny because then people start judging it as if it were stand up. I.e., yeah. oh, I laughed loads, therefore it was good, or I didn't laugh that much, so it wasn't good. Whereas obviously performance art, you might be asking people to to experience the embarrassment of a failing joke or experience the feeling of not laughing or or trying to play with the gap between. You know, if you're interested in comedy, like, there's a different kind of relationship to comedy. But with crits, I just think, like, firstly, it depends. I've never, to be honest, I've never been in a culture where, you know, people always talked about Goldsmith's crits being really harsh. And I just think that's, like, there's no real informational difference apart from being able to perform not being ashamed or something like but in terms of the actual information you're passing over politeness doesn't actually cover anything up like it's still completely humiliating if someone points out that you i don't know made something that looked like someone else's work or something if they do that in a nice or a nasty way i don't think it really makes any difference but also art is also about appearances so appearing to not mind people telling you your work is shit is probably quite an important part of being an artist and like that doesn't speak very well of art though to say it's about appearances is kind of like no, it literally is. It's about aesthetics, isn't it? Which is a, about appearance. Like, we're not talking about, you know, it's not engineering. It doesn't have to do something outside of how it looks. Like, it, everything literally has to be surface. Like, when I'm looking at your videos, I'm thinking about ideas, but they're ideas that you're presenting to me through the surface of the video. But then the ideas are happening a, a, alongside the aesthetics. I, I would, I would, I mean, this is just a... A different way you can just speak about it in lots of different ways and the yeah. way i'm trying to speak about it at the moment is that theory or ideas are, are a kind of material that actually works in a very similar way to i don't know like deploying you know your method of overlaying video mm. is a technique and then for me like deploying theoretical material is another technique because it makes people you know you could produce a certain kind of tone right which exists in the video and in the viewer and in their response to your work I don't think that's how I, I, I approach it at all um, I feel and maybe that's where there is a link between my political journalism uh, past and the art that I make now is like I feel like I'm always on some kind of inquiry that goes far beyond art like mm, I mean okay. I think at, at the moment like there's the, the work that, that we're talking about here the three little films there is like a really genuine inquiry into mental health and um morality and like i'm i'm so the stuff i read is not like i'm not like all the conversations i have with people around the work i make are part of a journey i'm on to discover things and to to find out more about the world and to sort of understand things better and my art is just like a manifestation of that Mm. um and then also I feel like I just happen to be really good at making videos so that sort of helps it get helps it push it out in that like you know if I was a singer or something and that would happen in that way but um no I think it's I think there's like a moral journey I'm going on constantly with this stuff that feels like the most important component of it and so in that case what makes you what tips you over from just thinking or researching or writing about something or having conversations about it into thinking oh this particular part of that i want to turn into a short film there's something that needs to happen between experience and i mean what art is is like 
what happens between like your experience and someone else. And I think that this is why this actually t- ties back into the the point I was making earlier about like it sort of annoyed me that a lot of the crits at lots of art schools at the moment have this emphasis on it. Have you experienced this? You know, I made a lot of work about emotional labor and mental health um, uh, when I started at RCA and someone said to me, I don't think you should make work about mental health unless you've had a really adverse mental health experience. You know, like, have you been suicidal? And I haven't been suicidal, but I also don't think that's important. I don't think I should have to declare, to show my scars. It's such a subjective thing anyway, but um, I don't think I should have to declare that inform- you know, information in relationship to my work. I think art has a relationship to experience where we put our experience through processes that make them easier for other people to be let into them. And that way it no longer becomes important that it's your experience. Obviously, I do think like it, it really is glaringly obvious when someone's making work about something that they they're not familiar with. But I don't think there are, you can make any hard and fast rules about it because experience is such a subjective and messy, unhygienic thing. And there's lots of things we don't know about people and how they've how they've experienced the world. There's a kind of new wave of moral thought that's happening, and we're all making lots of mistakes within it. So I'm, yeah, yeah. this isn't this isn't meant to sound um, negative about this person. But I always remember when you know Sophie, the musician. Oh yeah. Uh, when her first stuff came out, there was some kind of music criticism that was about uh, they kind of I don't I can't remember if Sophie had come out as a trans woman at that point. Either way, the point the point was of the of the criticism was that they shouldn't be pretending in inverted commas to be a woman by raising the pitch of their voice, and then obviously later it transpired that Sophie. Uh, was transition, you know, kind of um, mm. was a trans woman, and and I always think of that in terms of egg that. on their face. Those people. Well, that's <laughs> what I mean. Just imagine, just imagine, like having written that and then being like, "Fuck!" Like later on. Like, but doesn't that, that just prove that, like you? I mean, yeah, it's just. I suppose that I suppose the nature of the trans thing is particularly because it's something that doesn't become that is is yeah. It, it, a, it takes a reveal, time, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, there's a moment of reveal for someone. So that that kind of catches out that whole question of, of, of yeah, whether or not you can... Yeah, it's a very particular thing. story because, of course, it has such a... Again, clar- talking about clarity and um, knowledge or something, there's such a clear reveal where the person who thought they were being politically correct, as in, like, was, was making the kind of political judgment, turns out to be exactly and perfectly wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a particularly un... It's a particularly but then it's, Yeah, because it should never live on die, live and die by that sword. Like, yeah. it should never be that, like... Yeah, it, that just... It, it's it's so, um, so uh, binary and categorical yeah. and sort of... Um, yeah, you're just sort of, like, trying to deny someone expression, essentially. Even if that person never transitioned and was actually just, like, a bloke, you know, you just... Why would you say that, like... Yeah, let them, it, let them do their thing. <laughs> I suppose it's like there's there's some quite quick, simple critiques you can act, and one of them is like, "Oh, do you have experience of this? Oh, no, therefore you shouldn't be doing it." And I suppose, yeah. like again, that, that idea of that person saying to you, "If you haven't had suicidal thoughts," which is just a very particular kind of idea. Of it was a way thing. to create sort of. It was a way to create sort of status around. I don't know what it was. I don't know. Like you know, I'm. I don't I don't harbor any like um resentment towards that person but I it just misunderstands to me it misunderstands like the purpose of art like the purpose of art is for us to break free from for us to like share in experience mm. in a in a in a in a way that no longer like it shouldn't be it shouldn't be uh important in the way that it is suggested as being important but I you know this is not to say like um it that work doesn't have politics in that way. It's it's like amazingly like I'm just umming and erring now because I'm like uh, don't want to get like, cancelled. I'm imagining how this would sound to someone who is predisposed to dislike what I'm saying. Well, but what I do I is I tend to take I, tiny clippets of what <laughs> tiny snippets of what people have said and just put them up on social media without context. Yeah, yeah, this, so if that's yeah exactly. Yeah, I'm a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, go for that. <laughs> like, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like it's. Um, yeah, it's the reason that it's the the whole point of fucking art is that this stuff is really hard to articulate and yeah. messy and unhygienic, and that's why I make videos that that have like a really unclear message to them because I don't think you can tell people what to think. I think it's actually like wrong to do that. That's the only moral point I'll make is yeah. that people shouldn't moralize. <laughs> but, well, I think I mean for me, like what I've noticed in thinking about shame recently is that 
something like the crit, it implicitly recognised that shaming is going to happen. Like, what other situations do you sit around yeah. in a circle and, like, look at someone? Well, yeah, like, <laughs> public floggings, <laughs> hanging, like, all of these things. Like, it's not accidental. These, this is a structural thing that we're trying to replicate because that's yeah. maybe related to what art is, which is, you know, like, it's not that it is shameful, but that it shares a similarity with what happens when we feel shame, which is, like, yeah, yeah. we're taking something private and exposing it in mm. public. But, it, but I think that my it, my beef with it with crits is that it's not acknowledged as an exposure. It's acknowledged yeah, exactly. as like a professional process, and then people come away being like, "Oh, I was bruised," but you know, it's all part of the, you know. And it's like, but actually, the most important thing here is that you come out with like an increased confidence in your voice, and that might you know that doesn't mean that everything your voice does is good. It just means that you have like you feel you have an ability to speak in some form and there might be new ways of exploring that you know and adapting mm. but i think um yeah the the to, to to compare a crit to an exposure i would say like you know if you flinch from the crit if you show a bit of yourself to someone it's very like much like love you know and rejection and stuff like mm-hmm. if you show a bit of something of yourself to someone and they say no that's awful that's terrible like why did you do that and you respond to that by stopping making work or like making very tame unoriginal work then that's like a flinch you know that's mm. like you've 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 let the anxiety decide the rules of that scenario whereas if you go into a crit and you um sort of mindfully notice everyone cancelling you <laughs> <laughs> and then you kind of like return back to your values and like and you and you sort of put it all into perspective then that can be great. But I think that's quite hard to do and I don't think those structures really like encourage that because they are based on power. They are based on this person has had a show in a gallery and so therefore they know more than you do about making I think it's hard to... I think a lot of people don't recognise what people are learning in a crit. I think a lot of tutors don't recognise it and a lot of students don't recognise it. Like I've been talking with a friend about teaching some people how to be quiet, like teaching some people... Because again, it's this positivist... I'm probably misusing that word, but version of teaching where like oh yeah make sure everyone gets involved and whatever but obviously what happens then is that certain students get really involved and actually what you really want to do is just get them to shut up for like 10 minutes while <laughs> other students have a chance to like process something they're not even need to speak or i'm whatever, usually the one that needs to shut up <laughs> <laughs> yeah me too man me too. <laughs> yeah. a lot of me teaching has been reflecting on me being a student and being like oh yeah i was a dickhead and that's fine like i was a dickhead and there's nothing wrong with that like you know they're dickheads and they still get to be alive and make art and do all those kind of things but you're but part of it is teaching people how not to be a dickhead in a really specific situation or how, yeah, to, like, and how not to how to sort of create an environment where like you know because you don't want to sort of subdivide into like a, a positive thing that art, art school can be and that it definitely was in school of the damned was like um meeting new people who worked in very different ways from me and had a different demeanor to me i always say like my first impressions are really terrible like whenever people always like talk about first impressions and like our oh, first impressions count but like i always i often i don't really now because i've noticed learned to notice it um that i tend to judge people quite harshly when i first meet them and then often those that person will be the person i end up being closest to you know a few months later you know so i'm very like aware that um that 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 those processes are just like you need space and time and projects and like commitment in order to really get to know people and so those environments are really important that was a bit of a digression no no to include that but it makes me think of a i don't really go to parties anymore when but whenever i used to go to parties that i'd always like have a chat with someone really early on who was like really enthusiastic and fun i'd be like oh this person's great and then as the party went on you kind of realized that you were stuck with the person who everyone else had kind of turned away (laughs) (laughs) i'm just like a sucker for someone like being pleasant and then realizing later that actually like their pleasantness is a kind of mania or (laughs) something hideous that they have inside them We've all got something hideous inside us. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, no, there is something I wanted you to talk about. These films in this particular vertical format, um, mm-hmm. I'll put the links in the in the kind of description and stuff, but three films that you sent me now and then all the films that you put on Films from the Quar. Was that what the Films from was? the Quar, yeah. Quarant- short for quarantine. Yeah, sure. Um, how many have you made? Like, what? how long has this pr- project been happening and, and how long do you think it will go on for? Um, so I've made 13 in total. I'm lucky. Um, but 
I did, I was I was just going to be ten, but you know, it turns out pandemic continued. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, I see. So you really thought this is the end? Yeah, of this I really. Sequence. I just I just was basically. I guess this is like a wider discussion about like how people adapt to something quite like quite life changing, like um, being in the pandemic. And just before the pandemic hit, I was writing quite frantically a lot of scripts for actors um, and writing things that I wanted to make quite quickly. And part of them, because I hadn't made a, made a proper film with actors on my own for like a year, I was really keen to just get some actors together, just make some stuff, like not think about it too much, learn a lot from the experience, you know, bust it out, you know. Um, and I, like had a few meetings with collaborators. It was going to, you know, it was coming into place and then obviously... Uh, the COVID-19 hit and I couldn't you know obviously I have to keep making stuff in some form all of those scripts no longer feel relevant because they're encoded in them as a process was like that I was going to do this next week you know (laughs) but the nice thing with the COVID videos the the core videos is like that I could make them immediately and I could share them on Instagram immediately I don't know how people don't release things like my um my flatmate is a musician and he's got a vinyl coming out in June and it's stuff he made like this time last year. And it's just, I don't know how people deal with that, that lead time. I just want, if I've made something, it feels real. I just want to get it out. Like that's, you know, partly an element of approval there probably, but like Mm. just, it feels if it's, it's, it's in a, in a moment, it's through a breath. You just want to follow that breath through. Um, But yeah, basically I just wanted to find a way to reflect upon the experience of the pandemic without making it about the pandemic. Mm. So it was just, I was walking around, cycling around, getting the fresh air and I was thinking about a lot of things. I was watching a lot of stuff and thinking about a lot of ideas and this this vertical format that fits on your phone perfectly and has this inset process of a wider image and then an image in between and the subtitles was like the perfect encapsulation of my mind moving around quite quickly between different ideas and images mm. yeah. yeah when i when i finished when i did 10 i thought okay that's that's that even though the, we were still kind of in lockdown i wanted to just you know i didn't i didn't want to become tired i started to feel like the themes were becoming a bit samey but then i started to have some new ideas uh, a month ago and then i made these three ones mm. in quite a short succession i'll just make work however i need to make work you know in the circumstances it's the same for all of us isn't it they're very um we can we can finish that but they're just they're just very pleasing films to watch which is quite interesting considering the topics in general are about discomfort and i don't know anxiety and all these kind of feelings Mm. that have a negative valence like they don't feel nice to feel but it feels quite nice to watch your films about them which is yeah always i mean you have to have like a, a form and content uh, contrast don't you that's like a sort of principle I I feel is quite important it's like yeah making something neat out of something unhygienic mm. yeah just mixing the textures both formally that's a way in which actually the as you as you were saying earlier like the aesthetic and the and the material use the, the way that the the moral aspects of it are used as material in in contrast I, I know, I know. I, I think maybe I do agree with what you said in that way <laughs> no but that's interesting because that's almost the the way I'm thinking at the moment is to, to making this film, film stuff about power and mm. using vertical metaphors, so putting things above other things. But what mm. you're what you're saying is almost the opposite in terms of technique, where you get the conceptual stuff and you package it in a way that kind of contrasts with the conceptual meaning of the. Material. Yeah, because I think I'm trying to like it's just a reflection of my life, really. Not that my life is particularly important. Like I don't need to tell listeners about my life experience, but I'm someone who thinks about these things a lot and they affect my life, and so I have to process them in some way. And this is that's art. Like that's art is a way of like transmitting it out there, and so keeping that uncertainty in there that's another interesting principle of the whole kind of erp the exposure thing is like it, you're training yourself to be comfortable with uncertainty and i feel like art is kind of similar in that process you're becoming relaxed about uncertainty beep babaloo bab a womb bam boom hey what do you think of the outfit hey eh? it's what we used to wear in the 50s you could go down any street in the 50s and you'd see people wearing stuff like this. Brilliant, eh? You... Oh, God, it's gone. Oh. Yeah. 
Are you all right? Yes. You okay? Yeah. yeah. Just first nails on television. Yeah, is, do you want to yeah. pick it up from? Where, where would you like to pick it up from? Go on. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Thanks to Ralph for speaking to me. It's very kind of him to speak to me and for sharing his films with us. And I'll speak to you guys very soon. Bye. Bye.